0: Hey friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 154. You are going to love this episode and our guest today. He is the owner of Gypsy Gold, which is home of America's first gypsy Vanner horses, and the number one thing to do in a horse capital of the world, Ocala, Florida. Something that him and his late wife happened upon when they were traveling in Europe turned into something that would change the course of his life with the discovery of a gypsy community and the Gypsy Vanner horses. So I'm so excited to share with you a little bit of his story. And if you can't get enough, make sure when you are in Ocala, Florida next, you visit Gypsy Gold and go on one of his tours. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Dennis Thompson. I would love to hear about how you first kind of got into the horse world. What did that look like?
1: Well, my story is pretty interesting. I'm originally from Indiana, and my first home was a one-room chicken coop with no heat, no water, two by four bunk beds built by my father. But it was a chicken coop full of love and, and parents who weren't defined by it. And My mother wound up with the first McDonald's in America with a hitching post in Amish country in Indiana, and my father's master's thesis turned into a text for high school industrial arts. I was an extreme animal lover as a child and encouraged to be by my mother. She would quiz me every day about animals, and they called me the guppy god in the fourth grade and take mason jars full of baby guppies to school and sell them for a nickel apiece. Neighbor raised Shetland ponies back then in the 50s. And I had a big willow tree in the front yard, and I would fashion bridles out of the willow branches and ride those ponies until they were, they were all barn sour, so I'd have to fall off of them before I got to the barn. And a neighbor caught <laughs> me, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I, all my young life, I hung out at pet stores because I just, I just loved animals. And when I was 18, one of those stores asked me to work for him, and it was owned by the man that invented kitty litter, Ed Lowe. And I wound up managing his stores, and then I designed products for animals and set distribution for animal products internationally for the oh, next 50 years, maybe. I'm responsible for adjustable dog collars and adjustable dog harnesses and all kinds of things that are commonplace in peppers and tax stores. I took Hamilton Products and Quicksilver Shampoo and Be Nice Holders National in 1978. They were All three of those were in garages. And I set their distribution internationally. I was with Hamilton for 23 years. And I married a woman in 1990 who shared my passion for animals. And within the next five years, we had approximately 700 animals. We had uh, giraffe and camels and zebras and giant tortoises and wildies.
0: Wow.
1: We lived where Pat, per- yeah, we lived where Pat Pirelli lives now. And a dimension to our relationship was international travel. We traveled all over the world, always together. And we would spend any personal time doing research on animals that were native to wherever we were traveling. And in 1995, we had stopped at a Shire Center outside of London, and they were closed for the season. They said, if you'll come back and have dinner with us in our pub, we'll give you a private tour. So we got a private tour by a man named Phil Ball. He was the manager of the center. And and Phil was a professional horseman for 30 years and drove the Courage Brewery Hitch, the equivalent of Budweiser in England. And He owned a couple of shars at the center, and he had a two-year-old filly he was proud of, but he sell us the horse for 1,500 pounds and 1.70 exchange rate at the time, so it was 2,500 U.S. dollars. And hmm. She looked like 701 to us. We could be a little impulsive, and but we had never imported a horse and didn't know enough about shars and Phil told us that even though it's known as the English Shire, he said it's the farmers in northern Wales that have a generational passion for the big horses. So off we go to northern Wales for the weekend, and we spend a lot of time in old stone barns and the breath of the giant horses in the cold air and the accents of the Welsh farmers and wine and cheese at night. I tell people on my tours, it was terrible.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, Sounds really
1: rough. Yeah, sounds really rough. Yeah, yeah. So we're discussing the cons of owning the largest horse in the world as we drive through Wales. Uh, Big feet, of course. And the biggest one I've ever seen was a shire named Samson that lived here in O'Kalays in the Guinness Book of World Records. He was 22 hands tall and weighed 3,500 pounds. Wow. Yeah, a horse like that's intimidating. And and you need to buy a special trailer. They eat a lot. And if you wanted, you could buy probably 10 shires in America for what it cost you to bring one to America. So everything said, don't buy that char. But like I said earlier, we owned a giraffe, so we weren't discouraged very easily, you know? <laughs> yep. So we crossed the border. Yeah, we crossed the borders back into England near a town called Oswestry. We were in the countryside and we went through a roundabout and out the other side. And Cindy said, do you see that little black and white horse? And I said, no, do you want me to go back? And she said, no. And then she changed her mind. She said, yeah, let's do. So I... Turned around and went back and I parked on the side of the road and the little black and white horse saw us and he came running as hard as he could to say hello to us. And we both fell in love with him. He looked like a little shire, but without all those negative features. And he was black and white to boot. He's unique looking and we could justify doing something stupid as long as nobody else has one. And there's nothing like that in America. So we thought we'll buy him. And so we drove up the driveway where the little horse was and, and introduced ourselves to the farmer. And I have a picture of that moment actually in a uh, little room here in my barn. The farmer's dog is looking at me, and Cindy's asking the farmer, that little horse follows right back up the driveway. So the farmer explained it was this horse. He was only keeping it for a few days and it belonged to a traveler. I didn't ask him what a traveler was. And about 10 minutes into the conversation, he said, and he has a band of mares that looks just like him that he keeps hidden. And, you know, he was talking to two people with extensive background on animals and animal breeds and things like that. And you don't have a lot of something that looks the same unless somebody intends that to happen. And why does he hide them? So we we had questions and we asked if we could meet that man. And the farmer got in touch with him by cell phone. The gentleman came over and his name was Roy Evans. And his horse's name was the log uh, because he looked like a log. And we talked to Roy for a few minutes and he invited us to his caravan and took a few steps towards his vehicle, looked back and said, don't worry, it's respectable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't heard that in Amish country, so I wasn't sure what to make of that. So wow. we, got our, yeah, we got in our car and laughed about it and said, some things are worth dying for. We'll follow this guy. you know. So we followed him to what is a gypsy camp. We would later find out it's called a caravan site. And we would find out in 1968, there was an act called the Caravan Act by the British government. And it was an effort to settle these unique, colorful people. And they did what we did to the American Indian. They created reservations, basically. There's a 100 of them throughout Great Britain. They're called caravan sites in England. They're called halt sites in Ireland. You can halt here and you can halt at the next one. Just don't halt in between. So it's a way of controlling it a unique culture, you know? Wow,
0: yeah. So
1: the general public that general public doesn't go in caravan sites and the police don't go in caravan sites unless they're in pursuit. And we don't know that so we can go anywhere. It was a chain linked area. Roy Evans unlocked it. We went inside and we spent a day with Roy and his wife and others and they made his tea and gave us cookies and Roy bragged on his horse all day and he took us out and showed his babies the log produced and he told us he had mares that were 40 miles from now that his brother didn't know where they were. He didn't explain why, and I didn't ask. And towards the end of the day, he said, he's a one-off. He said, look all you want. He said, you won't find any better. And if you do, he's going to cost you a lot of money. He said, I'll tell you a place where you'll see hundreds of colored horses, but none as good as mine. He said, you go there, and then you call me after you go there. You tell me if you found one as good as mine. He said, don't forget to call me. So through Roy's invitation, we became the first Americans to ever attend the oldest gypsy horse fair in the world, uh, called Appleby. 10,000 gypsies gather on a hill to reacquaint, called Fair Hill, to reacquaint with family and friends and trade in horses. And we were there for 10 days before it opened and after it ended, obsessed with identifying every gypsy that bought or sold a quality-looking horse. Our sales documented contact information, which would be cell phones, and thereafter began a journey to understand gypsies and their horses that lasted the next four years. We traced the log's genetic history through three countries. We found his mother and father in Wales and his grandparents in Ireland, all raised by gypsies focused on producing a horse to look like him, born from a vision that was unknown anywhere in the world. We stood overlooking the Irish Sea with the log's DNA verified father, the old horse of Wales, and the gypsy that raised him. And he pointed to a clearing under a tree. He said he was born right over there. He said, I'll never forget the day he was born. I held him in my arms and I knew he was special. He said, he's the best colt I ever raised. And he took us in his caravan that day and he gave us a book on Appleby Horse Fair and he opened it up to a page that showed two of his sons, pony and three yearling colts through what's called the River Eden in Appleby, England. The lead colt was the log as a yearling he sold to Roy Evans for seven thousand pounds, twelve thousand five hundred dollars for a horse nobody's ever heard of, and it doesn't it's not recognized as a breed, doesn't have an official name. And that guy that raised I mean the the man in Wales that owned his father and, and raised him as a baby had fifteen hundred horses the day I met him. And he remembered that one. But he did for a reason, because only a small percentage of the horses the gypsies have are a breed. A large percentage are not a breed. And so the population is, is not as great as certainly 25 years ago it was. I had a gypsy they call King of the Colored Horses that called me every two weeks for, I think it was eight years, uh, on a cell phone in a covered wagon. And he said, I don't drink and I don't smoke. He says, you're my vice. I spend my money on you. And we would talk an hour and a half, two hours every two weeks. And I asked him, man. In 1998, when the breed was introduced in in America, I asked him to guesstimate how many of the breed there was, and he guessed about a thousand. But he, but he also guessed. I mean, he also told me that those aren't good ones. Only a percentage of those are going to be, you know, the ultimate of what the breed was envisioned to be. So it's, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, so how did it get from that point to the Applebee Horse Fair and uh-huh. experiencing that for the first time to then being the founder of Gypsy Banner?
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, we traced the logs' heritage through three countries. And, and over the next two years, I mean, over the first two years, we found homes for 700 animals. And we spent that time understanding what the breed was and was not and identifying the specimens of the breed that were worthy of breed status. And over the next two years, well, we spent a million dollars to buy two out of three of the best stallions we ever found of 14 mares. 11 of the 14 mares are daughters of the best three stallions we ever found, and two are granddaughters of one of the breed's greatest sires called the lob horse. He'd lob his ear to the side when he looked at you. And so it was... Uh, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime thing. It it has, well, on a plane ride home from meeting the log, it was an eight-hour flight from London to New York, and, and I was 46, and my wife was 42, and like I said, we had 700 animals at home. And I did we just discover a breed of horse, you know, you and me, a couple of freaks, you know. we We didn't know for sure right then, but there was this horse that looked specific, and he had, babies that looked like they came from him. And we saw a couple of mares and there were ma- mares hidden and everything, but we didn't really, we didn't know the details to that. But we knew a couple of things. Uh, my wife knew that we should walk towards it or, or away from it, that it would change our life forever. And we both knew that if we walked towards it, we're walking into a culture that didn't invite us, who's been treated poorly for a long time. And we didn't know how long then, but we do now. It's been over a thousand years that these people have been treated with prejudice, so uh, our effort has uh, we wrote a mission and and goals to achieve that are very culturally sensitive and we have foc- i have focused for the last twenty five years on on making sure that the honor goes to them and the, and and i I give tours of course on my farm and and you you'd think it's just about horses, but it isn't really it's it's a cultural experience and a horse experience so Anyway, it means a lot to me. So we imported the first two Phillies. Bat and Dolly got here November 24th, 1996. Cushtibag, it took two years to buy Cushtibag. I mean, the log, excuse me. And Gypsy's only dealing cash. And I couldn't go back to England right then. I negotiated the deal on the phone. And and so I called Phil Ball up, the manager of the Shire Center. And to be honest with you, I don't know Phil any better than I do you, but I, I, I said, Phil, I'm going to send you thousands of dollars and I want you to take him to a man named Roy Evans, take the money to a man named Roy Evans and give it to him and buy his horse named The Law and bring him back to the Shire Center and keep him there until I can figure out how to get him to America. And it worked. And when Roy Evans handed Phil the lead, he had tears in his eyes and he said, Kushtibok. Same year we got a Christmas card from a gypsy couple that we had met at Appleby Horse Fair and most gypsies don't read and write, so we're surprised to get a Christmas card and all it said was Kushtibok. Hmm. That means good luck in their, that means good luck in their language. And so we thought that's the perfect name for the first of a breed. So we changed the log's name to Kushtibach and he became GV00001, the first selectively bred horse raised by British gypsies in the world to be recognized as a breed, and the first gypsy liner horse to in North America, Easter Sunday, 1997. Can I tell you an interesting uh, little side story to the first two in America? Yeah, I'd love it. Uh, I th- okay, well, they got here November 24th, 1996, and they- Newburgh, New York, location of the USDA quarantine station and the last battle of the Revolutionary War. There was a rampart in Newburgh, New York with 50 British soldiers. And George Washington sent Thomas Jefferson to attack that rampart with 400 men. That was the end of the Revolutionary War. So a rampart, the ramparts red glare, the bombs bursting in air. Anyway, so these horses arrive And we live in Ocala, Florida, and, of course, we're uh, very excited about them getting here. And so we hook up a horse trailer. We're going to go drive and pick them up ourselves. And before we left town, we bought the thickest blankets we could find with their heads and bumpers that go on their heads. Of course, uh, if they raise their head up and hit it on the ceiling, it won't hurt them, and leg wraps. And basically, we bubble wrapped them. And and at the quarantine station, they said they'd never seen a horse dressed like that before. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty fun. It was pretty funny. But on the way home, we needed to sleep somewhere. And Cindy found a bed and breakfast in Virginia called Meander Plantation. And, and so we, they had stables. And so we spent the night there. And we really enjoyed the, the pe- new. It was newly opened by a Chicago chef and a food critic from Chicago. And that night at 2 o'clock in the morning, I, I woke up and, and thought of an old gypsy saying, Gypsy gold does not chink and glitter. It gleams in the sun and nays in the dark. I woke my wife up and said, Gypsy Gold, that's what we need to name our farm. She said, go to sleep. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so the next morning, we went down and did a new farm name presentation to the owners of Meander Plantation, and they loved it. And so Gypsy Gold, it became, and, and the next day was Thanksgiving. And they said, would you stay for Thanksgiving dinner? This is a Chicago chef and a food critic. So you stay, you know? Oh, yeah. They said there'll be one of the, yeah, they said there'll be one of the family join. Yeah, it was the King Ranch. So the birth of the American Quarter Horse and the birth of the Gypsy Vanner Horse sat having Thanksgiving dinner as the first two Gypsy Vanner Horses in North America munched hay in an old stone barn owned by Thomas Jefferson's father meander plantation was originally thomas jefferson's father's home and under his ownership it was called elam which is a biblical term meaning seven springs seven palms and peace A fascinating story and i i just i just found out last month that meander plantation is also where the uh whippet was born
0: Okay, so I have a question for you listening because I honestly used to dread having to get prescriptions filled for my animals. Does the idea of having to re-up your prescriptions give you anxiety? I used to be the same way, but then I started shopping at FarmVet. They make it so easy to get my prescriptions filled. All I have to do is order online and they do the rest. On top of making your prescription buying hassle-free, they also have a very knowledgeable staff that I can bounce things off of when I'm questioning a supplement my horse is currently using or considering trying something new. Plus, I love how easy it is to set up and manage auto shipments, so I know my horses always have what they need when they need it. Whether you're shopping online or over the phone, which I've also done all the time, because it's super quick, you'll get free shipping on all of your orders over $79. Thinking about giving them a try, you can use my code MYEQUESTRIANSTYLE to get 10% off your first order. Check out FarmVet at farmvet.com. That's F-A-R-M-V-E-T.com. Again, that is 10% off your order by using code MYEQUESTRIANSTYLE. Some restrictions do apply, like prescriptions and price-protected brands, so make sure you see store for details. Thank you so much, FarmVet. All right, let's get back to the episode. Awesome. well tell me about an area of the industry that you are passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about
1: all right so I spent my life the process of designing products for animals is identifying a problem and curing the problem it's that simple really and so if you do that for a lifetime you get it becomes a very familiar thing for you to do and and, of course, I'd never established a breed, you know, before. This is all new to me. But the Gypsy Vanner Horse is the world's first internet breed. And so that has, that has been a problem that I don't think other breeds have experienced. Multiple names, confusing messages, even confusing, uh, confusing images and so on. And, and I, th- I think I said earlier that the man who raised the log had 1,500 horses. Well, 80% of his horses, at, at minimum, were raised for the restaurant business in Belgium, Holland, and France. So they're a commodity-based animal of unknown heritage, but I can tell you they got smooth-legged genetics in them, where the breed has nothing but hairy-legged horses in it. And your podcast here isn't long enough probably to go into all these details. But, but so the, establishing a breed in the age of the internet has been, has been an issue because people communicate at a level that's unprecedented. So we all know that breeds change, you know? I mean, you look at a German Shepherd and he walks uphill and, you know, horse, I mean, breeds change over time. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. And so in the age of the internet, I-, I believe they change faster because of the rampant communication. And the way breed societies are structured, basically they allow that to happen because they're, they're clubs of people for a breed and they have a vote, and they have a voice to change a breed or not change a breed, you know, and yeah, so that part has been has been a little frustrating for you know for me, I haven't been involved with the the breed society i uh, Cindy passed away in two thousand two July third two thousand and two actually, I found her dead in a bar now she was full watching the first gypsy vanner horse in American fell to her death, yeah, yeah. So I went through a, a very difficult period and I turned the Gypsy Vanner Horse Society over to a conventional 501 nonprofit breed organization. And and so I've been, you know, kind of sitting back watching, you know, and I just, I, I become frustrated over things that are, are dear to me that change, you know, and I don't want it to change. Oh, probably 20 years ago, I looked at the log and I said to myself, what will you look like in 40 years? and and the answer was easy. You won't look the same. And I asked myself the question, why do breeds change? And so this is, I mean, it's a process of innovation is, you know, why does this problem exist? And so you have to pick it apart and and understand it the best you can before you can come up with a solution, you know. And, and anyway, so I did that. and And I'm hopeful that maybe... There can be some changes in the future where breeds are, you know, of course, everybody focuses on their look, but without health, they're nothing, you know, I mean, whether it be humans or or dogs or horses, you know, if they don't have good health, it doesn't make any difference, you know, what they look like. So health is number one. Temperament, if they don't have a good temperament, you know, again, whether it be a person or (laughs) or a dog or horse, it's a problem. And uh, so temperament is number two in my eyes. And then not, 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 not diminishing the importance of a look. The gypsy viner horse is a look breed. Short back, heavy hips, broad chest, heavy flat bone. That means flat on the knees and in the front. The hair should start the knee in the front, hock in the back, cover the front of the hooves. And the animal should have what a gypsy would call a sweet head, which means a more refined head than a draft horse has. And that's, that's the look, a look of a small shire. So an average sized horse with a draft horse body. Gypsies have been breeding them da- down for twenty-five years, and Americans have been breeding them up for twenty-five years. Yeah, wow. We saw that com- Yeah, we saw that coming early on. And so we established the breed registry with named size ranges. Mini Vanner, Classic Vanner, Grand Vanner. And by fo- by vote, then we had somebody that didn't like to name many and they they thought it would diminish the animal they had that was would have fit in that range. And and of course, I'm saying, no, well, I mean, Mini Cooper, Mini Skirt, Mini Mouse, you know, <laughs> they all, yeah, really, they all mean something different, you know. They mean whatever you present, I mean, whatever you establish their meaning to be. And, but anyway, so a vote took place and all those subnames were removed. Hmm. And I think that was a mistake. I think they still need to go back and put those names in. So stuff like that, uh, that happens, you know, yeah.
0: Um, Pretty frustrating. Yeah. Tell me Mm -hmm. what you're working on right now with Gypsy Gold, as far as making a space for more education and cultural center over by you.
1: Well, okay. Yeah. Gypsy Gold, my tour, I give tours four days a week and those tours have become the number one thing to do for TripAdvisor in ocala Florida wow uh, they're number three number three of visitor favorites in Central Florida with Harry Potter number one, and they're in the top ten percent of activities for TripAdvisor in the world, so I educate people for about an hour, uh, just like I'm talking to you, but of course in a lot more extensive and i'm seventy I tell them I have a problem to solve, and I turned seventy one last January. And this January, I turned 84 because I've entered the dog years, you know, <laughs> for every year. <laughs> yeah, for every year I get older, I, I'm aged seven years, it seems. But anyway, so, you know, at a certain stage in your life, tomorrow is uncertain, you know. And uh, so I don't, I don't want the effort to establish the Gypsy Vanner Horse as it was envisioned to ever end. And so I'm turning my farm into a Permanent Education and Cultural Center with a lot of really unique things. We have a, a hill here called Fair Hill after where the gypsies gather, but it's where we bury our horses. Steins on the left and mares on the right, kind of Norwegian style. Uh, that's the way Cindy and I were married. She was 100% Norwegian. And there'll be a statue of Kustybock wearing on Fair Hill and there'll be four benches with relief images of all 16 of the original horses. And you'll be able to sit on that with your iPhone and scan QR codes and bring them out of the ground and watch their videos and read their stories. And you'll be able to come to a dinner theater at night with a hologram presentation of our story on Fair Hill. There'll be some tributes to Cindy here that are unique. She was Norwegian and she loved birds. I raised four little girls alone for seven years in South Texas. And one of my daughters was 19 and she worked at a pet products distributor through my connections in San Antonio. And she called me one day and she said, dad, we just hired this new woman. She's beautiful. She has 40 parrots and a Porsche. She's perfect for you. <laughs> so that, yeah, that was, that was Cindy. So I'm creating a, a trail on my farm called the Viking trail. And when you walk a Viking trail, you must leave one prejudice behind and take at least one new idea with you and your ideas will be given to you by talking birdhouses in the shape of gypsy caravans. They're called mule canary cages. And uh, you'll pick a subject that is important to you and you'll push a button and PhDs or authors on that subject will talk to you and give you the ideas. And there'll be an evolution of keepsake photos on the Viking Trail, which are called wisdom walkers. And they're donkeys and llamas and goats and gypsy vanner horses named after human virtues like... Empathy and compassion and kindness and curiosity. And children will ride them or trek them, and the docents or teachers will teach the child the animal's name. And at the end of the trail, they'll get their picture taken and be sent to them digitally. It says, I know empathy, I know compassion, with the definition of the word in the picture, so they never forget it. And then there'll be a sanctuary here called 40 Parrots and a Porsche. It'll be, that's a beautiful, beautiful cage that exists in Vienna, Austria at a palace next to the oldest zoo in the world. And Cindy's life story will be, uh, there's four bump outs on the outside of the cage. This is a magnet. I have one bid so far and it's $780,000. So this is a nice cage. Yeah, this is not your average cage. Yeah. So yeah, so that her story will be on the outside of these bump outs and you as a visitor would be able to sit on the inside and read the stories of the birds with them. And they'll be color-coded, and the bird will be wearing the color of his story. And and all these birds are characters at any given time, but they don't do it on cue. We have some that'll sing opera and do cry like a baby and, you know, they mew like a cat and all this kind of thing. And and so you'll be able to push buttons uh, that where you can listen to the, the things that bird says. And, uh, you know, so... An interesting sanctuary for birds and uh, we'll have a think tank to cure domestic and wild animal problems. We'll have a resource center for children where they can get grants and scholarships and job opportunities. We'll have a place here called the Kleinen Zoo. Uh, Kleinen is Norwegian for petting and ZU is Celtic for ZOO. It's a kind of word zoo. So there'll be a quote from Mr. Rogers at the entrance to the Kleinen Zoo and there'll be uh, Two goats in there named Nice and Kind and a donkey named Mr. Rogers and a rabbit named Please and a llama named Thank You. Children will go in there while giving their parents the initial part of the tour that's too educational for them. And they'll learn the importance of kind words and courtesy. So a lot of neat stuff, you know.
0: That's so exciting. I think that that's mm-hmm. amazing what you're doing in kind of a uh, full circle from your original story with being in Europe and, and how that has really kind of changed the yeah. course of your life and what you do now.
1: I like these people. And if I create an oasis of goodness with the name Gypsy connected to it, people, you know, maybe will take a minute to think a little differently about it, or, or at least... You know, give them a chance to get to know them a little bit differently. I have very dear friends that I've had for 25 years and and that are gypsies. And I have a lot of gypsies that come to my farm. And it's not uncommon. At the end of the tour, they'll come to me and say, first place I've ever been in my life. I'm proud of my culture. And, and, you know, it makes me feel good. Yeah.
0: Absolutely.
1: Well, So keep the breed what it was intended to be and and give the honor to the people that created it. Uh, Amazing. So... Yeah,
0: I love that. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for taking the time to educate all of us listening about the Gypsy Vanner and everything you're doing at Gypsy Gold. I think it's incredible, and I wish you all the best.
1: Thank you so much. Bye-bye.